For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we, we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Hello, how's everyone this week? I've missed you. I thought we might start with a game. Name some buzzwords around sustainability. Eco, that's one of my favourites. Organic, that is definitely on the rise. List reports more people are searching for organic and also vegan. Big buzzword right now. Circular, everyone knows that's one of my favourites. But how about transparency? That's like the least sexy one, right? Because it's about supply chains. But it's also one of the most important. When Fashion Revolution first started to do the work they do, transparency was the big thing they tried to solve. Because if supply chains are murky, opaque, impossible to properly see, then we don't have a hope of fixing what's wrong with them. Transparency is related to trust. Actually, I just realised I said transparency wasn't sexy. Hello, if it's see-through we're talking about here, that is sexy. Although not if it is see-through PVC boots. Sweaty toes, gross. Anyway, what am I saying? In order to trust a brand, you have to have all the information. If a brand takes pains to hide things, what does it make you think? And yet, transparency in fashion remains uncommon. Now, of course, it doesn't solve all of fashion's sustainability problems. No, no, no. It's just a first step. Fashion Revolution calls transparency a tool for change, not the goal itself. And they say, ultimately, we need to act on the information that's disclosed in order to hold brands and retailers and also governments and suppliers to account. Our guest this week is obsessed with transparency. He is Michael Praceman, the founder and CEO of Everlane an American fashion company focused on modern basics with transparent pricing. They use the phrase radical transparency and they break down all of their costs online for everyone to see. And it's this, as much as their product and online model, that makes them look so far ahead of their competitors like J. Crew or Gap. I read this story in The New Yorker that compares Everlane to Casper. You know, that really successful, I only just heard about it, everyone else knows, the direct-to-consumer mattress company, right? And Away, there's a lot of buzz about those guys. They're doing something similar with luggage. But Everlane started ages before those guys. It was 2011 when Michael was just 25 that the business launched. Eight years and 800,000 Instagram followers later, they are killing it. In 2016, they clocked up $100 million in revenue. Mention their name in sustainability circles and people get very excited. Michael has been on my interview list for ages. Not that I'm saying they're perfect. They've copped a bit of flack for focusing so purely on transparency. But that's something that Michael explains they're now addressing in a big way with a new focus on materials. I really enjoyed talking to Michael, who's built an extraordinary business with a clear vision. 
And I do ask him about perfection and success, and I think you'll like his answer. Let me know. I'm always thrilled to hear from listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Mrs. Press. And please do tell your friends about the show. I can't believe we're approaching our 100th episode. This one is number 93. Michael, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Thank you so much for making time to do this in Copenhagen. Thank you very much for having me here and very excited to be chatting sustainability, transparency and all things related to Everlane. Since this is a fashion podcast, I'd like to begin by asking you what you're wearing. I wear the same thing almost every day. Uh, that's the classic uniform of uh, Tread by Everlane, our new sneakers. Wonderful black denim made in Cytex, the world's cleanest denim factory, as well as a denim jacket also made by Cytex and a simple gray t-shirt. You're black and gray. Are you, are you always black and gray? Is that your vibe? Sometimes I throw in white. It mixes it up, you know? This is the fun bit. It's not something I generally ask people when I compliment them on their outfit, but how much did it cost not just to buy, but to make? Let's start with your jacket or your shirt. I mean, you choose. How much did it cost to make and how much profit did you make? So I'll choose the denim because the jeans I know and I don't actually know. Generally, we have a 60% margin, which is called two and a half X markup. Standard you'll see is five to six, four and a half to six, depending on the brand. So it's much better for the customer. And if you look at our $68 pair of denim, it's about $27, $28 landed in the United States. So that means $68 USD is what I paid for it. We're going to get into that because I think it's so interesting what people know and what they don't know about how pricing works. Absolutely. But first of all, I want to read out a statement from the Everlane website and perhaps we might unpack it. It is. We believe our customers have a right to know how much their clothes cost to make. We reveal the true cost behind all of our products, from materials to labour to transportation, then offer them to you minus the traditional retail markup. You call it radical transparency. What, what does that mean? For us, I think radical transparency means that we, there's nothing that we hide from the customer. So if you look at a typical retailer and you buy a product online, and I don't know how it works everywhere around the world, but in the US, say, you go online, you buy from many different brands, and there's just a price. Sometimes it's on sale, sometimes it's not. And then it says imported. You don't even know what country it's made in until you get the product in your hands. And when you do, it says made in Vietnam, and you don't know anything about the factory. Or the fabric, or even what or that means. Fabric. I mean, which bit is made in Vietnam? Oh, yeah. Well, that's a whole other story to unpack, um, where the fabric and then where the product is made are often two different things. So we started with this basic concept of why don't we just tell you what our costs are? Because that'll give you confidence knowing that you're getting a good value and knowing that the quality is there across all of the products. And we did that with a first a t-shirt made in Los Angeles, and now we do it with everything, cashmere, you know, our shoes made in Italy, you name it. We tell you the cost of the material. We tell you the cost of the labor, the duties, transportation, every piece of it we reveal to the customer. And then we tell you what our profit is. So how cool is that? You get to know all of it. And you know, I think what, what it does for the customer is it builds trust because we are accountable to the customer then. But it is that word radical. I mean, people don't do this. Of course. And even since we've done it, no major brand has adopted it in any way, because I think at the end of the day, they would be revealing that they have a much larger markup than what we do at Everlane, which is a big deal. And not only that, I think one of the big things in 
retail is that when it goes on sale, which they offer discounts all the time, you would see that the markup when it's not on sale is so much higher and you would just sit there and wait for their sales even more than people do today. Ah, so that's what I was going to ask you. What else don't we know about pricing? For example, some product is priced to be outlet product, as in it's specifically price to be sold on sale. I mean, I just don't think people know that. There's really no transparency in pricing, is there? Yeah, I think the the way the model started is we'll just make product and we'll sell it. And then they overbought on inventory a couple of times. And so then you start running sales and you realize sales work. And so now they mark up just to mark down on a sale level. And then with outlets, 95% of what you see in an outlet is made for outlet. People don't know any of this, or they just don't even want to think about it, and they they trust the brands. And I think that's what we're trying to show is that in order to really trust somebody, you should have all the information. Okay. In a previous life, between being a Vogue journalist and then going to work for Marie Claire, and before I returned in this new role as sustainability editor, I had a small fashion label based in Sydney, and that that's where I learned about pricing. How did you enjoy it? Oh, it was the hardest thing I ever did in my life. Yeah. It was really tough. I made locally. I used expensive, too expensive fabrics. I worked incredibly hard and ultimately I made no money. I made stress. I don't envy you. But looking back, I'm glad I did it. That was the process whereby I learned how the fashion system works. I learned how, for example, retailers mark up my wholesale prices by at least 2.2%. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're marking it up 2.2. They mark it up another 2.2. And by the time it gets to the customer, it's 5x minimum markup. I just think it's so fascinating, this idea of a true cost of a garment. I mean, what kinds of reactions have you had by pulling back the curtain on it? You know, it's I think what we've seen more than anything is absolute trust from the customer that when they see that they go, this is a brand that is being honest and I can trust that what they're doing is always going to, whether it's right or wrong, be transparent to us. And that's the part that I think makes a big difference. So when you trust somebody, what what does that mean? That you know when you purchase something that if it goes wrong, you'll get help, that the customer experience will probably be good, that the people behind it have strong values. And I think today people want to support companies that do that. And even on the sustainability end, things we're doing now, which are picking up in much larger ways and we're being pretty forward thinking, it's both people assume we'll be doing the right thing on sustainability, but they're also holding us accountable and pushing us. And that's that nice balance of transparency. Can we talk about how you balance accessibility with transparency? Because your prices are relatively low. I mean, quite cheap. Affordable. Yeah, yeah. I guess cheap has negative connotations, which I didn't mean. Well, because people say quality can be cheap, but it's like the quality is often we use Italian fabrics for a lot of things we do. But it is affordable. And I believe... Those jeans are 68 bucks. Jeans are 68 bucks and it's Japanese denim. And how do we do it? I think the the big thing we do is we focus and spend a lot of time on very few things. And we use very focused fabrics and we try to spread those fabrics across as many products as possible so that we're doing a very focused effort on finding the right fabric in the right factory and then running as many products through that as possible. You're also direct to consumer. So you're cutting out half of that wholesale markup. We're cutting out half that wholesale. We're also because we're mostly digital, we're getting a lot more data so we don't have to discount and do inventory clearances as much. The model's just more efficient. And as a result, we can keep the price is more honest to the customer. 
But when we find a factory that we love and we work with them, we make a long-term commitment and then we run all of the product through there. And we we're willing to take more risk and partnership with factories. And so those are strategic moves we make that get much better pricing to the customer. How hard has it been to ensure that all your factories are ethical when you're being transparent, you're not revealing anything horrible? Yeah, there's it's challenging. So there's two ways. The, the first thing we do is we try to find factories that align on our values, and we're very principled on that. We, of course, have a code of conduct and have zero tolerance policies. What we do is we have multiple different auditors that we work with, and we cross-reference, and we audit uh, factories four times a year. So we do one major audit and then three surprise audits where we come in. Generally, what we find is factories, we try to keep a very high score across all our factories. Sometimes a factory doesn't score high, and it's usually due to paperwork that they're mismanaging, and then you basically have to go in and work with them, and they have to do education programs. And we don't ditch a factory if they mess up once. We give them a three-month cure period, and if they don't work again, then we figure out a way to either phase out or really work with them to fix issues. As a result of that, we've actually had to leave two factories since the beginning, but generally we do a pretty good job auditing up front to make sure we're with the right folks. But two factories have never really cured, and we said, hey, we got to go. Before we get off pricing, yeah, here's a question for you. Andrew Morgan's The True Cost Film has done a lot to center in the public consciousness this idea that someone always pays the cost of too cheap. With fast fashion, too often we notice the garment worker who pays. It's also the environment. But who pays the cost of too expensive? When you say too expensive, you say, like, who pays the price for luxury? I mean, I think the customer, right? Sometimes you'll say the volume is so low that they have to buy very, you know, small buckets of fabric and et cetera, et cetera. But most of the time, I mean, you can look at uh, Mr. Bernard Arnault, who's worth $90 billion, and say, who pays the price for that? Not bad. When you began with transparency, no one was doing it. Now it's one of those buzzwords I started the intro to this talking about. I've done panels, whole panels about transparency. Last year at this conference, I hosted a panel on the future of transparency, but there was also one on the current of transparency. I mean, it's just such a thing. Oh, that's good. Look at what we caused. Let's dial it back. How did you hit on the idea? No, that's my life. You know, it's when you grow up on the West Coast, I think in California and especially in the Bay Area, there's very much mentality that being open and honest will get you further versus, say, other places, maybe the East Coast where things are a little bit more closed off. And the West Coast is always centered around this idea of democracy and openness. And that's where the Internet was really born. And so I think from that perspective, it was that idea that we brought to an industry that felt like it lacked a severe amount of that openness. And the word we used in this time was radical transparency, because we believe we could just be completely honest about everything and just see what happens. It's an experiment. You know, for us, it's I think a lot of these things are an experiment. It's an experiment, though, that now others are taking up because there's a lot more pressure on brands to be transparent. Look, it's great, right? I think in the end, the beauty is that it's very hard for brands to copy what we do because we are very transparent and they're built on an old model that has a lot of costs hidden. And if you reveal those costs, you hurt your margin and nobody wants to hurt their margin. So we're happy to be very honest and transparent. And if others pick it up, that's better for everybody. But have you noticed a move towards normalizing it? with companies like, well, H&M are publishing interactive maps of their factories now. David Jones is actually doing it in Australia, and so is Tiger Lily, the swimwear brand. 
I think that's great, right? I think there's multiple levels of transparency. There's pricing transparency, there's ethics around factories, and then there's materials and sustainability. And we are the gold standard on pricing. I would say we do very well on the factories in terms of allowing you to see in them and see the names of these factories. And so we're pretty much up there with the gold standard on that. And then we're now starting to build into the world of sustainability and bringing transparency to that in our way. Okay, in the past couple of years, you've stepped up your focus on sustainable materials. We have. At the beginning, our sustainability angle was we didn't want people throwing clothes away. We wanted to be something that stood for everyone. And so the original premise of Everlane was actually we're going to make one T-shirt that's the best. We're going to make one trench coat that's the best. We're going to make one pair of denim. And it was very much this utilitarian utopian idea What we learned is you can't be so utopian because then you almost become dystopian. Everybody doesn't want to look the same. And so from that idea, what we try to say is there's maybe five to ten different versions of the perfect T-shirt because some people want a summer T-shirt. Some people have a different aesthetic. And so we try to do our best to cover the basics of life and maybe a little bit of fun with that, but not much more than that because we don't want people throwing this product away on a regular basis. And we want product that lasts. So we use Supima cotton. We use Japanese denim. We go deep and try to create quality in the few things that we do. We've always been focused on natural materials. We're primarily cotton with a bit of cashmere and you'll see leather, uh, you'll see wools. And we try to always use high quality. But we've started to move from just getting high quality from great sources to thinking about what's the sustainability of those. And that really started with two things for us, denim and synthetics, so polyesters and nylons. But you opened this conversation today telling me about your sneakers. The sneakers is the newest initiative. The sneakers is a whole new thing for us, which is... The shoe industry has all kinds of issues around sustainability. One, how they're made, uh, which is the soles are all made out of basically plastic. And Everlane's mission, one of our key sustainability initiatives, is to remove all virgin plastic from our supply chain by 2021. And so we saw this opportunity with the sneaker market to rethink the sole, rethink the upper, which for us is leather. And we're looking at new options around bio-based leathers. But right now it's standardized leather in a very clean tanning facility? And then how do you get the carbon emissions down to zero? How do you get a very clean tanning facility? It's the same one that developed the technology for Cytex, our denim mill, to clean the water out to a place where it's almost drinkable. This is in Vietnam. This is in Vietnam, yeah. It's right next to Cytex, and and they do an incredible job of bio work and as well as filtering to get that water as pure as one can for leather. And that's what we're focused on is what's the discharge of the factory. How about the soles? The soles. You know, it's interesting. When you buy a shoe nowadays, people just want it as light as possible. And it's light because they use synthetics virgin. When you start to remove the virgin and you use existing materials and then create it back into a sole, it gets a little bit. There's natural rubber, but it's 94% virgin plastic free, which as far as we know is the best out there right now. So what is it? A combination of rubber and... Latex. It's recycled late. A lot of recycled latex. So things that um, haven't been used. uh, So gloves. Really? Where do they get it from? Where do they get it from? I'd have to get back to you on that. Um, But I think I actually don't recall where the original source of it is. I've just seen all the outputs of different latex materials. I'm obsessed with feedstocks for recycling. I worry all the time about what I personally throw away rubber cells included. So it's interesting because a lot of our synthetics on the apparel side are made of water bottles. 
almost all those water bottles are coming from Taiwan, where they have an amazing, do an amazing job of recycling. I don't know how it is in the UK or Australia, but the US has a long ways to go on recycling. Well, I'll tell you how it is in Australia. Since January, China has banned the import of, I think it's 19 different types of foreign garbage. It includes most of what we used to send them for recycling. I mean, we used to export our garbage problem and now we've got this crisis. We have no idea what to do with it. It's stockpiling. I've heard of it catching fire in warehouses and certainly a lot of recyclables are getting landfilled. We just don't have built facilities to deal with it in our own country, which is, it's just shaming. I am happy that China is doing that because at the end of the day, the world needs to shape up and China can't be the place where we put everything. We shouldn't be exporting our problems. No, for sure. And that's we're exporting all kinds of problems left and right. And they pile up. And I think our hope is that as we look at, you know, even something like sneakers where we produce carbon emissions and then we offset them. So we're effectively carbon taxing ourselves. But that's not a great outcome in the end. What you really want to do is work with the factories and the suppliers to get your carbon emissions down, because you can't just create one problem in, let's say, Vietnam and then offset it in the US. It doesn't quite work that way. Michael, you mentioned denim as being another area you're now looking at. Absolutely. Right now, we innovate on the factory level because denim is one of the few products that you actually dye. And then at the factory, you actually wash out all the dyes. It's this odd idea that we're going to make something look distressed instead of letting it wear down over time. We're going to wear it. It's crazy. You probably buy denim that looks worn down, don't you? Well, I've definitely done it. I think everyone has. I haven't done it. I wear black. We used to be almost like a badge of honor as your jeans wore and you lived in them and they told your story. They were like a visual map, a record. Who wants to wait 20 years for that now? It's ridiculous. You now pay someone to fake the experience. Hey, people have an Instagram post to post today. They don't want to wait 20 years from now. Instagram might not be here. So what are you doing? We work with Cytex, who does an incredible job. They have a reverse osmosis filter that when it's washed out, they can purify it to a drinkable state. They take the dye stuff and separate that from the water. Can I come to your factory and drink the water? I have drank it. Drank it? Drunk? I I drank it. (laughs) Are you drunk? I am not drunk at this moment in time. Uh, I have tried the water and it's it's great. Was that on an Instagram story? Uh, I think it was in a video that we had at one point, but I have had it and it's totally drinkable. It's potable. And then they take the dye stuff and get this. They detoxify it and they mix it with concrete and they have then uh, concrete bricks to help build houses. Oh, I've got stories to tell you. Shall I tell you? Tell me, please. On the plane on the way over, I was sitting by chance next to a former colleague from when I worked at Marie Claire. And I hadn't seen her for a while and she knows I love sustainability. So she was like, oh, Claire, you'd be really proud of me. My favourite brand is Everlane. And she didn't know that I was coming to interview you. <laughs> but she told me how obsessed she was with your jeans and that they're the only ones that she buys and they fit her and all that. And she gets really excited when she can go to San Francisco to visit your stores. But she said that one of the reasons that she loves a brand is sustainability. Are you proud of that? I'm proud of it, but we have more work to do. I think uh, what we have to do now is figure out how to go down to the source of it, which is the cotton, and then also the mill itself. So there's multiple levels with everything. And this is what I also think consumers completely don't realize. When you tell people it's a factory, they often don't realize that the fabric is made in a completely different place. And then the farms is so you can have farming in the U.S. that goes to a mill in Italy that then gets exported to Vietnam for production. And that's, I think, what we will eventually help consumers understand is the full life cycle of a garment from conception of the farm all the way to delivery. 
Michael, may I take you back to when you began the brand? What were you looking to disrupt? I think for us, we started as this idea that we learned that a basic T-shirt, and I learned, I guess you could say, because I didn't know anything about it, that a T-shirt that, a you know, call it a high-end brand sells for $50, really beautiful t-shirt, only costs $7 to make. And that just felt so dishonest, right? It's just crazy. And so we said, why don't we do that same thing, but sell it online for $15, not 50. And we did that. And then we decided we need to help the customer understand why this $15 t-shirt is the same quality as a $50 t-shirt. Because in the past, people assumed price is quality, right? That's what we're taught. You get what you pay for really simple thing you get grow up learning and we are helping customers understand that that might not actually be true but what was the kernel of the idea so this is what 2010 2011 end of 2011 i worked uh three years on the investment side but i it wasn't for me i'm not a i mean i understand numbers well but it's i'm much more of a storyteller and i like to sort of push culture forward and this is where we saw the opportunity at everlane were you looking to start a company and then thought you'd figure out in what area that would be or why fashion, I guess? It wasn't fashion so much. It was retail. And I, it was just always fascinating to me is like, how do you buy things, consumer behavior? And so trying to rethink that because it felt like the model was going to change the way we were spending time on the Internet and the power of digital to tell stories and bring things to life. How can we leverage that in terms of selling new product and uh, bringing customers along with the journey. And so it was really that idea and figuring out where it sat. And it was once we learned these markups, we said, why don't we try this? It wasn't so, you know, go write a business plan and figure this out. It was just what felt right. So I left. I spent a year dilly-dallying, learning about the world and learning about where there might be opportunities, trying things, meeting people. And this was like the it was a bit of an aha moment. But I mean, this wasn't this. It's been eight years, you know, it's taken a bit. And for some people, people that see Everlane now or in the past year go, whoa, this brand, where did it come from? It's so but the journey was not so simple. It's now it never is. Okay, so I'd love to know about your childhood. As a kid, did you want to be a businessman when you grew up? Mm, That's a loaded question. I wanted to make an impact. I've always wanted to make an impact, um, that for sure. I grew up in the idyllic world of Northern California in a town called Sunnyvale. It's like a, it feels like it should be a movie, huh? Sunnyvale. And it was always sunny. And I biked to school and um, sort of like Copenhagen, you know, like where we are here today, where everybody bikes. I bike to school every day. And uh, it was pretty idyllic. We had 13 different types of fruit trees in our backyard. Um, and my dad was very much into that. And I did gardening on a, I don't know, maybe a couple times a month. And then we went and did berry picking and all this. It was like, it was a pretty nice, you know, childhood. But it was also in the center of tech. Apple, Yahoo, Google, all of those started when I was uh, growing up. Because the, the Silicon Valley is this interesting place that was actually all cherry orchards. And then the reason it was called Silicon Valley is because the first semiconductor companies, Intel and Fairchild National Semiconductors came in and they were using silicone. And so it got called Silicon Valley because all of these new tech companies were coming up and slowly the orchards moved out of Silicon Valley into the open fields and this became a tech hub. So I was sort of there as we were moving from orchards to technology. So it's kind of this cool place of seeing how one world transitioned to another. So what did your father do? Uh, my father was on the tech side. Ah, He started a... He was an entrepreneur, tried to start a couple of businesses, did a couple of things and had a good time doing it. Being raised in that world, did it make you have a disruptive view on the world? 
I think it was an idyllic view of the world of anything is possible, right? Because you went from cherry orchards and apricot orchards and picking berries to all of a sudden Apple popping up and Google popping up and Yahoo popping up and uh, Cisco popping up. And I mean, every Sun Microsystems, I mean, some of the most largest companies in the technology world, Facebook, Instagram, and you see it all happen and you say, hey, I can do anything. Of all those kids you're at school with saying, what's going to be my tech dream? I There was definitely a bit of that, yeah. And I don't know if I had that at that point, but probably a little bit, yeah. Do you think Everlane is a tech company in some respects? I think we're digitally enabled. I sort of say technology nowadays is the backbone of a lot of companies. If you remove it, it helps the information flow. I mean, even here today, look at all the technology we're using to have this podcast. But we're very much, you know, a design driven company. We think about how do we design stories to customers? How do we design product? How do we design everything so that it's clear and more honest to the customer? So I watched this panel that you did with the business of fashion. Oh, how'd I do? (laughs) You were great. Okay, good. It was about tech disruptors. And I wrote this thing down, you said, because I thought it was fascinating. So you're on that panel with the woman behind Stitch Fix. Oh, yeah, Katrina. She's lovely. Yeah, and Moj Madara, is it, from Beautycon? Yeah, Moj. You said, whenever you tread a new path, you have to be somewhat naive. It's that idea that if you don't know how hard something's going to be, that's quite good because it doesn't stop you. I like that quote. Yeah, I think it comes from, uh, you know, it's actually, I always think in general, and I try to still have this attitude of this, uh, I don't know if you know this philosophy sort of from, uh, I'm not a Buddhist, but Buddhism, there's a beginner's mind that always approach everything from a beginner's mind, because if you come at it from a beginner's mind, you're always open to new possibilities. And if you come at something without a beginner's mind, you come closed and you come in a place and you say, oh, it has to be done this way. Nothing has to be done anyway. Nothing has to be done the way it was. There's always new opportunities. And if you want to tread a new path and if you want to also just, I think, stay curious and have this sort of like open and inviting view of the world, then being having a beginner's mind, I think, is always helpful. Well, there could be a perception that dialing into the fashion industry when you don't have a fashion background and you don't know anything about making clothes, most people would think that was a disadvantage, but you turned it into an advantage. For sure. I think so. And I think if you have a beginner's mind also, you, it has to come with the idea that you, whether one views it as failure, you have to be open to the possibility that some things work and some things don't work and that's okay. And it's just a journey. I always say that life, I was talking to somebody at our company the other day and I said, you know, look, we're on a long road together, working together. We've been working together a year, but right now we're on a windy road because it's, you know, we're hitting some bumps and I say, Hey, there's a windy road. Don't worry. Well, it'll be a straight road sooner or later. And the security comes in knowing that sometimes you have windy paths and sometimes you have straight paths and they just come and go. What are your bumps? Uh, we have all kinds of bumps. We have production bumps. You know, we have China tariff bumps right now. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, and then the question is, when you're transparent, how do you communicate that to the customer? Um, so there's all kinds of bumps. There's people bumps or bumps feels wrong. It's just, that, you know, it gets a little windier and sometimes you get a little dizzy. But I guess what, what are the big challenges? The big challenges for us are, um, you know, sustainability and how fast to move and how to do it in the right way, um, because I wish we could be sustainable in everything. And when we say sustainable, I wish we could have a completely renewable and low impacts as low as possible, carbon neutral, we could say, or carbon zero, zero waste, um, all renewable with recyclability across everything tomorrow. 
system doesn't exist for that. So a lot of times we have to figure out with partners and push them to build the system. Yesterday we were sitting with one of the largest shirting manufacturers in the world. And they want to work with us because they know we tell stories and they're pushing the environmental work. And they said, well, what if we tell you this? And what if we tell you that? And I said, it's not enough. You got to do more. It's just not enough for us. And we understand if you can't do it, but if you want to work with us, then you've got to push these measures to 100%. And then that gets them to say, okay, we know Everlane can help tell that story. And we know that they'll help bring customers forward. So how can we find a couple of areas where we can push that to 100%, whether it's energy, whether it's recycling, whether it's using zero chemicals in the work they do, whatever it is, we help push customers and factories forward. Why are you in business, Michael? What is your purpose? Because it's like you don't stop. You're always looking at the next thing. One of my questions was going to be, what happens when you've nailed this whole transparency thing? You're never done, right? Because the world, there's always more modernity. There's always new things. I mean, could you have asked somebody in the 1900s what happens when your farm is efficient as possible? And now it's like, come on, you barely need to have any people working on a farm. It's all automated. So the world always moves forward uh, for better or for worse. It depends on how you view it. And I think if you have a beginner's mind, there's always new opportunity too. What's my purpose? I'm, I just enjoy you. I mean, two things you have to, I used to be very goal driven. Now you have to enjoy the process every day because if you don't, um, you just get to the goal and then you just try to get to the next goal. And I think that's less, it's just always pushing things forward every day. And my dream is really to educate customers and help push that sustainability forward. I think fashion has this unique ability to both sit in a supply chain, which is how things are made, and culture, because we wear this product every day and you sort of sit there proud of it. And you can say, hey, this denim I'm wearing was made in a sustainable factory. What else do you have on you that you can tell that story? Nothing. That's cool. It is cool. I think so. It's one of the reasons I'm in fashion. People often dismiss it as just surface, but in fact, it touches so many areas. No, everybody buys, yeah. We also started talking about an antidote to fast fashion and presenting Everlane as something that wasn't fast way before that was popular too. How do you relate to speed now and to overproduction, which is one of the big topics of conversation at the moment? Where does your business model fit into that? I think we used to look at the that model. It's less about the overproduction. It's just it's too low priced is the issue. And as a result, people buy too much so that, that you sacrifice quality for price in this world where, that you know, you buy a T-shirt for two dollars. What's the true cost of that? And as a result, people buy all of these products and have, you know, I don't want to say I don't want to ask anybody how many shoes they have in their closet. But if some people have 75 pairs of shoes in their closet and they're buying 15 new pairs a year. And I, I don't come from a place of judgment on it. I just think that that's a massive tax on the planet. And we just have to be careful that if the product is too low priced, it usually comes at a cost. And that cost is landfills. That cost is environmental consumption. It's whether it's pulling petroleum out of the planet, whether it's forcing us to have more farms and deforestation. There's a lot of issues around it. And I think consumers don't know those things. And often even the companies don't know it. They're just buying it at the lowest price. And somebody somewhere is you know, sacrificing our planet for it. Now, we all know this. It's something I worry about every single day. I work in an industry that's basically trashing the planet. And I know loads of other industries do that too. But fashion is a special case. It's all about making you want to buy more and more. I mean, I work for Vogue. We sell you clothes. Yeah, there's a weird aspect to being sustainable. So how do you manage that? I mean, I'm always trying to figure it out in my own heads. I'm like, okay, 
here I am trying to steer culture towards less irresponsible consumption and I'm trying to spread awareness and look at ways that fashion can change. So I feel like that's a good line to take. But what can we do? How do you deal with that personally? How do you think we can balance sustainability with commerce? It's hard. I don't think we're in the business of what we do is we don't play the fashion game. And so we try to stay away from trends that are going to last, you know, less than three years, I think. But we do market product. And our hope is that we market a better alternative. And then we educate customers along the way. And and we try to make our product better. But at the end of the day, I don't know that we're in the business of changing consumer behavior. And I don't know that it's our place because we do sell product. I think there's something odd about telling people to buy less and then marketing. And there's this weird, you lose trust with the customer and you lose faith because it's weird to tell someone, hey, buy less, but then buy this. It's difficult. You know what I love, which is going on right now, is the whole condo effect. I think in some ways that has a different perspective for customers. It's not our place to tell them, but I think it's great, which is Mary Kondo telling people, hey, only keep the items that spark joy, buy the items that spark joy. And hopefully that gets people to think about how much do I really need in my closet? I just wrote a new book and in it I raised the problem of the knock-on effect of throwing all this stuff out and not considering where it goes when you don't want it anymore. There's no consideration in the books and on the TV show. I mean, I've never asked her. I don't know her. But the impression I get is if it doesn't spark joy, gone. But where to? That's your responsibility. If you're chucking stuff out, it's up to you. The minimalists also do this and they drive me bananas. They're like, get rid of it. Yay, take your power back. But for me, there's a missing piece of the puzzle. It's not just about decluttering. No doubt, but I have witnessed people who have done that, and now when they buy, they buy much more mindfully. So I understand that the short-term impact might be all of a sudden Goodwill has all this. Um, And I helped a friend actually literally remove 16 garbage bags full out of a two-bedroom apartment. It was wild. It was unbelievable. I could not believe the things that were in there. But now when she shops, she's so thoughtful. Yeah, I think there's something in that. People look at shopping detoxes as a chance to recalibrate. And I think that's the part that, because the world is, the world has seven and a half billion people on it. It's going to continue to move forward. And if we get people to be a little bit more thoughtful. But we need to think about the end result of what happens when we've turfed out the things we don't want anymore. For sure. But we need to think about it. The challenge is there's not much to do about it right now because the recycling system and the system in terms of giving that away and people buying used clothes, it's challenging. But there's great things happening. I think the real real is a really great outcome that is getting people to buy used things like thread up. There's a lot of product out there that is, at least in the US, where people are starting to buy much more used as well. And that's also wonderful. With Evelyn, you've nailed transparency and you're now looking at materials. You mentioned before that you're thinking about climate impact, but I'm wondering, are you doing anything with circularity? What about end of life that's one we're not looking at that much because it's so complicated you can't do everything and so you got to choose where you spend your time and what we have the most ability to impact right now for us in the way that because we're marketing and selling product is that beginning of life Mm. the farm to the mill to the factory to the customer what I hope is that somebody else is out there doing the work on getting customers like the real real, like thread up, like on our end in the US, and I'm sure you guys have things like this in UK and Australia, whether it's Salvation Army or Goodwill, there's people doing the work on what to do with end of life. And then hopefully there's people doing the work on how do we do better job recycling. Mm-hmm. We're playing around in some places with this, but it is hard to do it all. 
And so I think if we can get the material stuff to change, that has a massive impact because people, other brands will follow. I was going to ask you what advice you have for listeners who run their own companies or who want to. Perhaps that's actually good advice, not just for them, but for everyone to say you can't do all of the things. I relate to that. I personally struggle with that overwhelm, looking at my giant to-do list and all of it. Maybe there is strength in recognizing what it's best to leave to others. I think so, because it sets a new supply chain. It allows other people to, quote unquote, copy it. And so if you can do a few things well, other people will, and then you go on to the next. But what would your advice be? What is your greatest learning from the Everlane experience? Uh, my greatest learnings for if you are a new designer, focus on less do a few products really well, and find great people to work with. It's that simple. Fantastic. Thank you for being on the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Michael. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends will feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you